This is the Scotland Starts Here podcast. Welcome to episode four. My name's Dave Howard, and I've got the amazing job of sampling all sorts of brilliant sights, trips and experiences in Midlothian and the Scottish borders. The hope is that by telling you stories here about what's on offer, it'll encourage and inspire you to book your own holiday or short break to this amazing destination to experience it for yourselves. And I hope you've brought your appetite with you, because this one's all about food and drink. What I love just here is the colours, but also the smells. Well, let you me know, get I'm... you one of these. Hang on. Wait till you smell this one. What is it? That's lemon verbena. Oh my goodness. It's amazing, isn't it? In this episode, we'll meet some of the proud farmers and expert growers who help give Midlothian and the Scottish borders a reputation for being the breadbasket of Scotland. We have tons of fantastic meat and dairy and fruits and uh, wild foods as well that come from here. And a lot of the food that you get here really does speak clearly of the land and the people. And I think that's what's really unique about this area. It's absolutely all about where stuff comes from, how things are made. Restaurateurs, delicatessens, the most dedicated producers will introduce you to a fine selection in this tasting menu of an episode. But first... Can I come on board? We've gone fishing in Eymouth. Okay, I'm uh, Will. I'm a skipper of charter angling boat, i.e. we take out uh, rod anglers on our daily basis, out hopefully to harvest some of our wonderful natural crop that we have out there. Right at this moment we're standing on the boat which is a, a 41 foot Cheverton, specifically designed for charter angling trips, a uh, very large deck space so we can accommodate 12 anglers at a time. Obviously people can come out with you, spend time fishing and they can take home what they catch as well. Oh, most definitely, most definitely, yes. As long as the fish that are caught, we have size limits and uh, we obviously adhere to them very, very strictly indeed, especially at this uh, time because stocks, as we know, are, are very valuable and we need to make sure that they continue the way they are. But yes, the object of the game is to take home a small amount of catch, enjoy your proceeds of the day, your well-earned proceeds too, I might add. We have most wonderful array of whitefish and shellfish that are landed on a daily basis, especially from Scottish waters, yes. But readily available, readily available to all of us. A day's fishing out here, if you was that way inclined, you could easily take home three different species to give you three different uh, complete meals. Cod. Everybody loves cod and there is an abundance of it still in our waters. We're very, very lucky there. We also have a lovely summer run of pollock, which is becoming more and more popular in the restaurants and on the menu for households throughout the country. And of course, in the summertime, mackerel. Now, the mackerel in this part of the world are as big as small tuna, we do have mackerel to three and a half or four pounds in weight. And in the, although that doesn't sound quite um, huge compared to the other fish, it is a very large mackerel. 
As regards to preparing them, well, without a doubt, the wonderful thing about fish, fresh fish that is, of course, is it needs no preparation whatsoever. A small knob of butter, a gentle fry, a squeeze of lemon, and you're eating food of the gods. Caught by your own hand on the Be Cool fishing vessel by Rod earlier that day. What could be better? It's the whole experience. Brilliant, Will. Uh, just give us the website again. www.becoolfish.co.uk And actually, what might fox people there, there's two E's in B, isn't there? It's B-E-E coolfish.co.uk Yes, it yeah. is indeed. Yes, it is indeed. Thank you, Will. Thanks for your time. Well, as special as it undoubtedly is to catch and cook your own supper, especially in the pristine Berwickshire Marine Reserve, it's nice to let others do the work too. So you'll find some of the best fish and chips around at Jacko Patsy's, just a short walk from Will's boat at Eymouth. The Cullen Skink, a kind of smoked haddock soup, is the specialty at the Ebcar Cafe a few miles away in St Abbs. I'd recommend that too. It's fresh, tasty and inexpensive. Also, a bit further away from the coast. My name's John Henderson. Uh, we are born in the borders, uh, just near Jedburgh. Um, we are a brewery and a distillery and a farm shop and cafe and visitor centre. And we are totally focused on local provenance, local sourcing and local food from the region. This episode of Scotland Starts Here is all about the amazing food and drink that can be found here in the borders. There's so much of it. I can't get round all of it, unfortunately. But what you have here is a real showcase. Absolutely. Uh, that's what we always set out to be. I think when we were first starting on this journey, we didn't really know what was out there. But what we discovered that in this region, that there is an absolute cornucopia of different producers making different sorts of things from beer and whiskey through to marshmallows and meringues. And we just really wanted to bring their stories alive because I think what's interesting about local production is the people who make the food and drink. It's their stories that actually add character to the product, to their creations. It's their life. I mean, it, it literally, to most of them, it is their life. And we get their life stories when they come to drop off their produce. And so we are very, very close to them in terms of the way we interact with them. And, you know, if someone's... Uh, loses a sheep or a sort of cow goes lame or something, you know, we know about it almost instantly and so the connection between us and them is incredibly strong and I think that's very important in terms of the supply chain as a whole. We're sitting here in the restaurant and I've got a menu in my hands here. What would you pick off on the menu here that is an example of what we're talking about, just amazing local produce. The one that jumps out to me always is Peelham Farm. Uh, they're an organic farm down in Berwickshire. They are utterly, utterly committed to their ethos. Organic to them is the be-all and end-all and absolutely critical in terms of animal welfare, producing a virtuous product that should be enjoyed in a sort of guilt-free manner. And I think of all the sort of producers we have, they probably absolutely espouse the values of local production more than anyone else. And, and they're just a fantastic bunch of people to know. It is producers like Peelham, uh, producers like ourselves, who see the process from end to end, who I think can start to really build connections between end consumers and the people who are actually making the produce and growing the cereals or the livestock. And what would you be saying to tourists and visitors coming to this area when they come to the Scottish borders, they've made the decision to come here or to Midlothian, what should they be doing on their trip to make the most of this fantastic food and drink? 
I think they should be living like a local, absolutely experiencing everything the region has to offer. This is Scotland in miniature, the Scottish borders in Midlothian, and it's absolutely the breadbasket of the nation. Uh, there are more sheep in this area than you can shake a stick at, there are more cattle. It really is all about production and food and just getting a taste for what's out there, whether it's flavoured vodkas or it's cheese or, or whatever it happens to be just immersing yourself in the sort of absolute wealth of produce that this region has to offer and I, yeah, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. This is a land of game, beef, seafood, all fresh produce and you'll find much of it on display here at Born in the Borders. So John we've moved from uh, the we restaurant have. Where are we now? Yes, this is our uh, food shop and deli. Uh, so we're looking at lots of lovely local cheeses, local chocolates, local charcuterie. Um, they're all products that probably come from within 15 to 20 miles from here, um, all made by fantastic producers with incredible stories. Uh, if I pick one at random, uh, we've got uh, Brenda Leddy, is a fantastic local cheese and butter producer. She has her own herd of Jersey cattle. Um, she is at force to be reckoned with. Uh, she once moaned that someone didn't know who she was when she gets postcards addressed to Brenda Leddy, cheesemaker, Scotland, and they seem to find their way to her. So um, you, don't, you don't mess with Brenda, but she does make amazing butter and cheese. It's so clear to me that this isn't just food to you, it's people and stories and community. It absolutely is. I think it, at its heart, it comes back to a connection to the land, the people who live on it, the people who work it, what it produces. And I think that is a very historic connection. We are all kind of hefted to this area. It's kind of in our blood and being that this is what we do. What's fantastic about this area, it, it, you know, if you go to, for example, the southeast of England, local food kind of disappeared and then came back as a trend. It's never gone away here. Every town has its own butchers. On, in those butchers will be boards telling you the local farm, where the meat has come from and been reared. We've never really lost our connection to our food and to the provenance of it. And I think that's what's really unique about this area. It's absolutely all about where stuff comes from, how things are made. John, thank you very much. Uh, slightly further along the uh, refrigerated unit here is somebody else I want to speak to, Charlotte Maberly. Charlotte, we were talking before I started recording how hard it is to describe your job title, so <laughs> I'm not even going to try. <laughs> what, it is. what is it that you do and why are you here? Well. I don't yet have a perfect title for what I do, but essentially I do teach people about the wider world of food. So everything from the anthropology to the aesthetics, the agriculture and the politics and pleasure of food. And you're a local lass. You live in Jedburgh, just around the corner from I here. I am. I'm a local lass. Uh, so brought up in the borders, born in the borders as well. We've just been hearing John talk about these food items on display here, the chorizo, mm -hmm. the butter, the cheeses, the oat cakes. And he was describing them not just as food items, but as stories, elements of community. What you're buying is not just the item, but also the provenance. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in an ideal world, all food would tell us of the provenance, tell us the story of where it comes from, because of course, food is a direct communication between our bodies and the land where it came from, the world around us. In an ideal world, that would happen with all food. Of course, nowadays in the world of you know, mass-produced food and, and supermarkets, a lot of food becomes quite anonymous, but we're really lucky in the borders. We have tons of fantastic meat and dairy and uh, fruits and wild 
foods as well that come from here, as well as some fantastic grains as well. And a lot of the food that you get here really does speak clearly of the land and the people, which seems like kind of a simple and obvious thing. But actually, if you look around, even the rest of Scotland, I would say it's getting harder and harder to find that direct and clear articulation of a place's history and its terroir. One of the places I'm going to visit is the Free Company. Have you heard of the Free Company in Midlothian? Yes. Um, Funnily enough, I'm meant to be going to dinner with them on Sunday, but I couldn't get a ticket. You know, putting a good I word. I might have a me. word for you. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that's right. No, but they—they're—they're they're a really great example, and I see more and more examples like the Free Company. They were just some young people who wanted to do something extraordinary. They saw an opportunity because there was a farm that was going to be sold, and they wanted to take it over and and use it as a way to reconnect people with nature, with their food, and with farming. I think they did it out of recognition that that's something that has been lost. And here is the free company. It's like basically like a forge-like oven. A fine dining experience in Midlothian with a backstory and an ethos that really set it apart. Co-founder Angus is showing me their very rustic homemade stove. It has three sections to it. So on the left, you basically have, I guess that's your hottest side. So a lot of slow roasting, searing and whatever of vegetables. That's on that side in the middle. Uh, it's also particularly hot where we cook a lot of our breads, uh, black breads, pizzas, and you can get a hell of a heat out of that. And then on the right-hand side, this is a much colder oven, and we do most of our smoking on this side. And then when it's ready, take, take it upstairs. But yeah, it's a pretty nice way of, of, of cooking. And over your shoulder there are the axes that the wood's chopped on. Uh, yeah. We are in the middle of your family farm. It's a, you're the fifth generation on this farm, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it used to be, traditionally, it used to be a dairy farm. So a fair bit of diversification has gone on over the last last couple of years. Angus and his brother Charlie's parents were going to sell the farm due to hopelessness over falling milk prices. But they asked if they could take the place over instead. They thought it was worth one last shot at trying something completely different. We're open as a restaurant to the public for seven months of the year, two months in the spring, three months in the summer and two months in the winter. And the idea is we're basically showcasing the best of Scottish seasonal produce. And the vast majority of that produce is grown and raised on, on the farm by ourselves. I've mentioned a few times in these podcasts about how the attractions and the places to visit uh, that we're highlighting are very close to Edinburgh. This place, in fact, is just a short taxi ride from the city centre, isn't it? It is, yeah. We're, we're really lucky to have Edinburgh on our doorstep that is, as our catchment area because there's a, a really good bus service a lot of our guests are able to take public transport straight out here we pick them up in a little shuttle service from Bologna and bring them up to the restaurant they can enjoy a drink and then we can take them back into town which is a I guess for for a rural restaurant it's a pretty lucky service to be able to have. So you're the fifth generation to own and run this farm in the same family. It's really clear to me that you feel the weight of that, the responsibility of that. To make this venture work means that this continues to be your, your family farm. Yeah, I mean, that is something that uh, I feel very, very proud and, and also very, very responsible to be playing a, a part in. Right now, you know, the farm is no longer raising dairy cows, but we are growing a huge amount of vegetables and raising rare breed pigs, but a few sheep on the farm, and that's all going into supporting, supporting the restaurant. So we've been joined mid-chat here by Charlie, your brother. Charlie, if you don't mind, just describe the, the experience here, because it's more than just a restaurant, isn't it? It's a real sort of gastronomic and dining experience. Yeah, I think when you, when you turn up and you initially drive up the sort of slightly bumpy farm track, you immediately see 
our garden right in front of the steading here on a, on a dinner evening. It's filled with guests who are wandering around and quite often some of the team are there picking stuff and offering the odd leave straight out the garden to the guests, letting them try it. Yeah, they immediately are come into contact with what we're growing at that time and, and what what incredibly fresh food tastes like. People can often be quite quite shocked that, to, to believe that we are the ones who are also doing the farming side of things uh, as well as being able to you know cook it up and serve it. When people realise that is a really nice sort of connection to make. We can and we do most weekends change the menu at, on a night at literally the drop of a hat because we realise, oh my word, tonight we have 60 guests in and we only have enough for 40 portions of cabbage or, or of the leeks so, or the Jerusalem artichokes or whatever it is. The actual meal itself, uh, we don't issue you a bill and this is something else which is quite unique about what we do. There's no bill that's issued to you at the end of the night. Rather than that, we explain about our pay what you think it's worth system that we've been running for the last three years. Uh, and at the end of the evening, We'll basically stand upstairs, we'll introduce the whole team, talk a little bit about what we're doing, and we'll basically explain the importance of, of asking people to think carefully about how much they think this even, the, the evening is worth as an experience. And before they leave, they pop downstairs where Charlie and one of the bartenders will be, and you basically give them your reservation name and how many you're paying for and how much you're paying, and they just take it from there. So it's quite unique, and actually it's a way for people to do what we've been talking about throughout this episode, which is to get back in touch with, with food and with food production. We do feel really lucky to be able to bridge, bridge that gap and kind of, yeah, talk more about the importance of provenance and seasonality. Booking a meal at the Free Company can be tricky. As we've heard, they're only open for three periods each year, in the spring, the summer and winter, and there is high demand for places. Your best bet is to plan ahead, be flexible, and contact the team well in advance of when you'd like to go. That's at the-free-company.com. But it's by no means the only fine dining experience in this destination. Check out the award-winning paper mill at Las Wade, Kringletti House Hotel, the Firebrick Brasserie in Lauder. There's so much more. As ever, the Scotland Starts Here app or website are your starting points to plan a visit. What I love just here is the colours, but also the smells. Well, let you me know, get you one of these. Hang on. Our next stop, also in Midlothian, is a gin producer, stocked by Harrods, Fortnum and Masons and others. It has much the same ethos as the free company, keeping everything as natural and as seasonal as possible. Wait till you smell this one. What is it? That's lemon verbena. Oh my goodness. It's amazing, isn't it? My name is Hamish Martin. My wife and I, Liberty, own the Secret Herb Garden, a seven and a half acre herb nursery, cafe, wedding, gin distillery on the outskirts of Edinburgh, just at the foot of the Pentlands. So we make a lemon verbena gin. Because we don't grow lemons or citrus or anything, I refuse to use what we can't grow. So we get all that citrus notes and flavours from that plant. I actually think it's got more lemon than lemon itself. It's so sherbetty, it's beautiful. Where you are now, you can look through this window, you can see the copper stills, so we make the gin here. Shall I take you outside? Perfect, yes, thank you. That's our herb nursery. Hi, Julie. So that's where we grow all the plants to sell. So the rest that you're gonna come and see, actually, is produce for the kitchen, and majority of it's really all for the gin. You're surrounded by the best part of 2,000 junipers here. In here, that's a lovely big wild area. We've got 30 beehives in there. 
And we've walked past, I'm no expert, I'm afraid, but we've walked past Coriander and Scott's Lovage. Which is a brilliant, people think it's like the normal lovage, it's nothing to do with it. It's a wild indigenous plant that lives by the coast. It's one of my hidden uh, secrets. I absolutely love the plant. So these are your violets, your cornflowers, uh, chamomile, calendulas, angelicas are over there. You can see this big wild space. Everything from nettle, bog myrtle, sweet sicily, woodruff, yarrow, wild plants, our own indigenous wild plants that hold so much flavour. And it all speaks to an overarching philosophy that you have, that everything needs to be natural. Uh, oh, I can see an alpaca. Yes, this is my, my, <laughs> just, my next door Just been neighbor. totally got, distracted by got, an alpaca. He's got two alpacas, he's got the goats, he's got donkeys, a turkey... Uh, we've got the pigs that are, are here, but the whole land's been cleared by pigs, and my original two pigs are in retirement now in, in the field just over there. Sorry, I'll get back to the point. <laughs> um, it speaks to your philosophy, it seems, which is low impact, doing what you can with what's available. Definitely. For me, it's an important message. So in here is our drying room. So this room is kept at 37 degrees, same as your body, same as a beehive. You've got your dehumidifier, uh, your dehumidifier. Um, there you go. Um, <laughs> when it's turned on. When it's turned on. We're only doing these four trays here, so it's not too bad. But in the, in, we'll have that on the whole time. And then you circulate the air. If I'm doing roots, I'll put these big fans on and it'll circulate the air much quicker. Um, but this, when you show barmen and, and baristas or buyers and they get, oh, I get it now. I understand what your gin's all about. But it's not just the gins. It's all about plants. It's For me... It's all about making people aware how amazing nature is. You know, our gins turn colour, they smell of the flowers. So if it can make you smile, then that's nature that's making you smile. Nothing to do with me. Nothing to do about just how clever the label is and how wonderful the bottle is. Go right back. It's how amazing the plants are. And I'll show you the glass house now, which really sort of compounds that. Brilliant. Thank you. It's looking great in here, guys, by the way. Thank you. Really good. So you can see this is half the size of a football pitch. We can do weddings in here, big functions, full moon dinners, or you just come and sit and have your coffee. And you can see the glass house here. We've got peaches, apricots, figs, oh, 19th century old French pears. There's lots of secret places. So the idea is to use your imagination to let children just run around and enjoy the space. And if, as an adult, if you get five, 10 minutes to have a cup of coffee and a little bit of peace, result. That's that lemon verbena plant, by the way, that we were smelling and the smells particularly in the summer and the vibrant colors must yeah. be extraordinary you can't see so if you're sitting in the cafe there it's just a, a, a jungle of plants it's just a mass of color well thanks to hamish for that whistle stop tour just search secret herb garden or old curiosity distillery for opening times there Next, we're back at Traquair House with the lady of Traquair, Catherine Maxwell-Stewart, who we met in our first episode on history and the reavers. It turns out that brewing is yet another part of her family's extraordinary story. We're now on the east wing of the house. This was originally, as you can see, a coach house and stables, but in the sort of 1700s, it was repurposed into a brew house and of course every country house would have had its own brewery because of course that was the most healthy drink at the time and here they built quite a substantial brewery um, it's a four barrel brew plant it was used really up until the early 1800s and that was when um, duty um, was introduced so that made really domestic brewing um, not very feasible also all the commercial breweries 
had started by that time. So most of these country house breweries, they were all mothballed, dismantled and, you know, reused for some other purpose. Now, for some reason at Traquair, we don't know exactly why, but they just basically forgot about it. So they didn't dismantle it. They just used it as the family junk room. And then when my father came here in the early 60s, he was opening the house to the public and he started investigating all these different areas. And he came in through this door here full of junk but he managed to make out the fact that there were these two old open coolers and he actually had a background in distilling and he recognized the fact that this was actually a brew house then he looked to his left and surprise surprise there was a copper a copper that had not been touched it, we found the receipt for this copper in, it was purchased in 1738 <laughs> for the sum of eight pounds and ten shillings and had that been known about during the war, obviously it would have been taken away for munitions, so remarkable that it survived. So he decided that he might try and put a brew through again. So um, he used to brew two or three times a year. And then gradually, there became a much stronger interest in real ale. We have basically built the brewery up. We're now exporting two-thirds of what we produce. Um, obviously, we're still pretty tiny, but we do manage to get out about 250,000 bottles a year. So clearly it's been built up over the years since your father pressed it back into service, but some of the equipment here dates back 300, 350 years. Yes, and actually, um, remarkably, we are still using the um, original fermenting tons, um, which are just next door in the old tun room. So um, originally, all, the, all beer would have been fermented in wood. Over the years, of course, everybody has moved to stainless steel. Here, some of the original vessels were still left, so we decided to continue fermenting in, in these wonderful oak vessels. And we're the only brewery now left in Britain fermenting in oak, and I think this really imparts quite a unique flavour. You can really sort of taste the, the woodiness. It gives it a real sort of depth and complexity. It's not exactly an efficient brewery, but it is a craft, and it is a craft that is a really um, beer that's made with love. <laughs> made with love, and also there is a complete absence here of anything that you might think of as modern industrial factory processes. We're standing on a, you know, a flagstone floor. The wooden tons themselves are on stone cobbles. This is the definition of a cottage industry just here, isn't it? It really is. No, it really is. We export a lot of, of our beer, well, about a quarter of it now goes to the States, and we get quite a lot of Americans who come to see the brewery where Draquair comes from, and they can't quite believe that it is all brewed here, but absolutely it is. <laughs> there are actually more than 15 breweries in the borders in Midlothian. If you like, you can book a tour and make your way around them with Scott Beer Tours or Scottish Food and Drink Tales. But if aspects of production at Traquair are centuries old, the Borders Distillery in Hoyk brings us right up to date. My name is John Fordyce and I am the co-founder and director of the Borders Distillery. We're the first Scotch whisky distillery to open in the Scottish Borders since 1837. And we built the distillery in old Victorian industrial buildings. We've not changed very much, we just brought it back to life and then we've installed a brand new single malt whisky distillery. It's a tremendous, breathtaking place to visit and it's open to the public for tours. So the first thing that hits you is the noise, and the second thing that hits you very soon after that is the smell, John. It smells absolutely fantastic. We're in mid-production at the moment, so we've got milling going on, we're mashing, we're fermenting, and we're distilling all at the same time. 
So I'll just describe the scene. We're in a, a, a warehouse, a, a stone-walled warehouse with eight huge steel cylinders. What's in each of those cylinders, John? So these are fermenters, or as we call them, washbacks. We mill grain, barley, malted barley, sourced entirely from local farmers. We put water over the top to create a sugary liquid, and then we ferment that sugary liquid with yeast and we end up with a beer. We call it wash, but it's technically a beer. And we're gonna move on through now from these stainless steel enormous cylinders to a different type of cylinder. These are copper, I presume. Yes, so these are, we're in the still house now, and we've got five stills in here. These are entirely made of copper, entirely made by hand. You can feel the heat coming off this yeah, still yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 100 degrees C. No, the thing's a beauty, and to think they're made by hand is remarkable, really. It's enormous, yeah. yeah. And again, the smells, there's a different smell in here. It's much more of a, a whiskey smell, actually. It's yes, fairly this, obvious, this isn't this it? Is, this is less malty. You're already starting to get these, these mixed aromas, these quite fruity, sweet aromas coming off. Yeah, it's the smell of three in the morning at, uh, <laughs> at some parties I've been to. <laughs> Any good distillery tour ends with a chance to taste the product. For now, it's gin rather than whiskey. Here's something we made last week. So this is called William Kerr's Borders Gin. Kerr was a man from Hoyk, a botanist. He went down to, to Kew Gardens. He was picked up by Joseph Banks, who's the botanist that went with Cook to Australia on Endeavour. And he's had one of the top 10 plant collectors from Kew. We found out all about him, and we've named our, our gin. That's a healthy measure. <laughs> if you want to smell that, you should get lots and lots of juniper, quite distinctive uh, note, very ginny gin. And if I add a little bit of tonic water to it, you should get all the fruity flavor. Oh yes. So juniper and citrus with a bit of licorice at the back and so that's what we make, that's what the team make uh, at the moment and then we've been making single malt whiskey which is in cask at the moment and we'll have to wait a few years before we can sell that. So you've not actually sold any whiskey yet? No, we've just been making it. The law is you can't sell it until it's three years old and it's not generally ready at three years old so you keep it for, you know, for as long as you can basically and then, then it goes to market, you know. That's going to be a red letter day, isn't it? The first That'll day you can day. sell whiskey. That'll be a really good day, yeah. So just a note of caution then to anybody looking to come here and buy Borders Distillery whiskey. Uh, it's not ready yet. No, but they can try the new make spirit. We, they can try our other products. Can they buy whiskey and, and leave it in the barrel, as it were? To, to yes, have we, a, have a, we have a scheme whereby people um, can buy a cask of whiskey and we look after it for them for 10 years and then they get the bottles after 10 years. It's very popular with groups of friends. You know, they pay a little bit each and everybody gets something out of it. Quite popular with grandparents, presents for their grandchildren, yeah. John, what a pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. You're welcome. So here I've just rolled, I think it's about 250 white chocolate truffles. We're rounding off this episode with a little taste of something sweet. And then here are my two big chocolate machines. This is our chocolate section. Coco Black in Peebles is the chocolate shop and patisserie run by Ruth Hinks, a world-renowned chocolatier. 
This is the kitchen where Ruth and her team make the product. Over here, we've got one dark and one milk machine, and it's a 24 kilo machine, so we can produce probably about 100 kilos in two hours of products if you want. Depends how fast your staff work, you know. Depends <laughs> how, much, how much you can produce. And we've got a chocolate guitar over there which cuts all our chocolates into perfect little squares to put in our in our boxes and through well, did you call it room. a chocolate guitar yeah it's called a guitar because it's got strings that because cut it's got right. strings that cut yeah i've had a little look in the in the shop in the high street such an array there of handcrafted amazing beautiful chocolates all with you know your name on i guess that's the yeah well i've been making chocolates and cakes for about 37 years um so i've got a lot of experience and just try and get as much variety as i can in the shop purely just to make it look pretty in the counter. Lots of different colours and textures and flavours are always good, but also just because I enjoy making them all. So as a visitor to this area, as a bare minimum, definitely pop into the shop and see if you'd like to pick anything up. But what is on offer as well is potentially spending a bit of time with you, Ruth, and learning your craft with you here. Well, we do chocolate classes, so we do truffles, pralines, ganaches, Easter eggs classes, Christmas classes, we do Christmas gifts. We also do pastry classes, which is French patisserie, summer patisserie, winter patisserie, contemporary tarts, cheesecakes, tarts and custards. So there's a load of classes that they can choose from just for the beginners. But we also do a couple of classes for people that want to become professional chocolatiers. Wow. <laughs> Um, and are those classes one day or one week or are they quite bespoke and tailored? Some of the, I've, I've tried to break up uh, the chocolate classes into th to level one, two and three. So I can teach the basics in level one, work on those basics in level two and then really push the boundaries on level three. They normally about two days long. Obviously, after two days, you're not going to be a qualified chocolatier. It takes years to just, you know, practice and learn. And I mean, I still do co courses myself. It certainly will get you off on your way to, to starting to do something for yourself. I've got lots and lots of people spot, uh, dotted all around Scotland now and England that have come to me that have started their own businesses. Fantastic. What, what an offer. If people are interested and want to find out more, how, how can they do that? Where can they go online? They can go online to www.cookleblack.com and there's a section on there uh, for the school. There is a class calendar on there with a short description of each of the classes that they can do but you can also just ring us up in the office if there's any questions that you have if you you know not sure it's suitable for you or you know you can just give us a call and, and see what we could what we could do well i'm pleased to say i came away from coco black with a small sample to try and mm, oh my it's good i picked up some gin and some beer too but i'm saving those for the end of the podcast which is right now Here's Borders singer-songwriter Evie Archenhold to play us out again. Thanks to her for sharing her music with us. Hey, how you doing? How was your day today? Because I know you've had a bad week. Sitting at the edge of my seat, waiting for a reply. Felt like I was waiting for a week. Do check out Evie's music and lots of other talented musicians as well from this area at soundcycle.bandcamp.com. As always then, a huge thank you to all the people and businesses who took part in this podcast. That's Will at Be Cool Fish, John at Born in the Borders, 
and gastronomist Charlotte Maberly. After that, we had Angus and Charlie from The Free Company, Hamish at The Secret Herb Garden, Catherine, Lady of Traquair, John from The Borders Distillery, and Coco Black's Ruth Hinks. So please, if you can, rate, review and subscribe to Scotland Starts Here wherever you get your podcasts. If all we've done so far is to whet your appetite, well, that is no problem. There's just so much more to find on the Scotland Starts Here app and website. Download the ebook, for example, with so much more on Borders and Midlothian food and drink. I've been Dave Howard. It's been a real pleasure bringing you these four Scotland Starts Here podcasts. Hope to see you again soon. I'll be there.